channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. So you can watch us there as well. So welcome to the African History Network show. It is Friday, September 3rd, 2021, and we are live broadcasting here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. So I saw the story a couple of days ago, and then also um, I saw it today from uh, the Washington Post. And it is another lawsuit filed by uh, Benjamin Crump, attorney Benjamin Crump. And this involves um, perceived or um, alleged racial profiling in Beverly Hills, California. Um, Benjamin Crump is suing on behalf of an African-American couple and they're suing the Beverly Hills Police Department. And the Beverly Hills Police Department uh, launched a task force called Safe Street and Rodeo Drive Task Force. Um, the Beverly Hills Police Department's operations, Safe Street and Rodeo Drive Task Force. And this task force from March 1st, 2022, July 1st, 2021, uh, arrested 106 people. They arrested 106 people. 105 of these people were African-Americans. They arrested 106 people in this task force from March 1st, 2020 to July 1st, 2021. And all except one of these people, all except one of these people were African-Americans. And African-Americans make up, is, is surmised, about 2% of the population there in uh, Beverly Hills. So uh, this was a lawsuit uh, filed on behalf of uh, an African-American couple from uh, Philadelphia. We're, we're going to talk about this here. And then we'll talk about the... Uh, we'll give a recap in the uh, R. Kelly trial. We didn't talk about the R. Kelly trial on Thursday. So we have to cover day 11. Thursday was day 11 in the R. Kelly trial. And then also trial took place today as well. Um, in day 11, you had a woman who is now 33 years old who testified. Um, that she started having, she uh, said she had a friendship that turned to a sexual relationship with R. Kelly. And she met R. Kelly when she was 15 years old. The witness now 31 and testifying under the name of Alexis told the jury she met R. Kelly at a concert in Jacksonville, Florida during his lighted up tour in 2006 when she was 15 years old going on 16. Okay, so we'll talk some about what happened on day 11. And then um, trial took place today as well, day 12. And in testimony uh, today, in testimony today, um, 
you had one woman who testified that R. Kelly paid her $200,000 to settle a lawsuit uh, because she alleged that R. Kelly gave her herpes. And she is the fourth woman to testify in this trial that R. Kelly gave her herpes. Okay, so we'll discuss that as well. We talked about this also on Roland Martin Unfiltered. And uh, attorney Terrain Bailey was on the panel along with myself and uh, Brittany Lewis. So we had a good show today. We had some legal analysis of this trial also. So it is more and more craziness coming out of the trial each day. We didn't talk about it yesterday, so we'll get you caught up on some some of the crazy things that happened in the trial. All right, now, uh, and then also we'll let you know about the online course that I teach uh, on the weekends uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. I teach that on Saturday and then uh, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, teach that on Sunday. So um, we have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register for the classes uh, there. So we'll talk a little bit about that also. All right, now on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with it's based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So we control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts. You can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events and history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and sign up for our email newsletter there as well. Okay. And you can support the uh, African History Network. Uh, if you'd like this type of information, you support the African History Network. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. We're here six days a week. And this helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills, etc. All right, and we also have the information on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right, so I, I want to jump into um, this first story. And this is from, uh, this story comes to us from the Washington Post. And then also uh, I, I saw um, the article from ABC Channel 7 out of um, Beverly Hills, California. But... If we look at this article here, and then we're going to go to the reporting from uh, ABC Channel 7. Um, a Beverly Hills lawsuit. Let me pull this up here. 
Uh, Beverly Hills Police Task Force arrested 106 people. All but, all but one were black lawsuit claims. All but one were black uh, lawsuit claims. Now, uh, Beverly Hills Police targeted African-Americans with harassment and arrest for low-level or non-existent violations uh, in an effort uh, to keep them away from Rodeo Drive, according to a class action racial discrimination lawsuit filed in California, um, filed in California Supreme uh, Superior Court on Monday by civil rights uh, attorney Benjamin Crump and uh, Bradley Gage, civil rights attorneys Benjamin Crump and Bradley Gage. So that was filed on August 30th, 2021. Now the complaint centers on the Beverly Hills uh, Police Department's Operation Safe Streets. Operation Safe Streets, okay? This is the Operation Safe Street and Rodeo Drive Task Force. And it was it's a campaign to address safety on the city's famed luxury shopping destination of Rodeo Drive. And we know that Rodeo Drive is in uh, a number of different movies. We know Beverly Hills, uh, Beverly Hills is a number of different movies. When I first read this story, okay, you know what came to mind when I first read this story, right? Uh, the, the scene from Beverly Hills Cop, the first one from 1984 with Eddie Murphy, okay, when he looked like a bum, and 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 uh, I think it was the, the police, was the police or security guards threw him through the uh, the glass window, all right? Uh, uh, threw him through the glass window out the building. That, that's what first came to mind. Okay, <laughs> when I read this story, so I said they did it to Eddie Murphy. You know they do it to us. Eddie Murphy's a, Eddie <laughs> Eddie Murphy's a millionaire. I said, they did it to Eddie. <laughs> you you know they do it to us. So the lawsuit claims that between March twentieth and July twenty first, I'm sorry, between March twentieth and July twenty twenty one, March twenty twenty and July twenty twenty one. The task force made 106 arrests, 106 people arrested. It just so happened that 105 of them were African-American. Okay. The, uh, the one person wasn't African-American was Latino. Just so happens. Okay. It was a coincidence. Now, attorney Gage, who is involved in filing this lawsuit said, quote, if 2% of the residents of Beverly Hills are African-American, but almost 100% of the arrests uh, uh, are, are American people. That's a pretty clear indication something's wrong. Okay, Attorney Gage told the Washington Post. Okay, I want to go to this clip here. This is from ABC Channel 7 uh, out of uh, Beverly Hills, California, uh, reporting on this story. Let's go to this clip, Ed. Uh, yeah, take it off uh, mute the uh, clip. So the just play it when this when you got it queued up. Uh, the Beverly Hills Police Department did not address the number of minorities arrested in the enforcements, but in a written statement. And if we go look at this because the the statement from the 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 police department was hilarious. Okay, the. Um, Let's see here. The 
two lawsuits filed. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. against the city of Beverly Hills, two people who were arrested last year say they were racially profiled. Now what it is, but Rob Hayes has details on the suit. The city of Beverly Hills accused again of discrimination. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump, representing this couple, arrested last year by Beverly Hills police. They spent a night in jail for riding a scooter on the sidewalk and resisting arrest. We didn't see any signs. Anything saying that it was illegal to ride a scooter on a sidewalk on Rodeo Drive. I'm scared. I've never been to jail in my life. The Whites and Williams were arrested here on Rodeo Drive. They were not alone. According to the lawsuit, more than 100 people were arrested as part of two enforcement programs. All of them, the attorneys say, were minorities. You had 106 people arrested. 105 of them african-american one latina the beverly hills police department didn't address the number of minorities arrested in the enforcement but in a written statement the police chief said white and williams had been warned earlier in the day that riding a scooter on a sidewalk was prohibited at that time the chief writes no enforcement action was taken when committing the same violation later the same day and also providing false information to a police officer Mr. White and Ms. Williams were taken into custody. But this is not the first time Beverly Hills has been hit with a discrimination lawsuit. There's been a culture in the city of Beverly Hills that's been tolerated for far too long. Attorney Brad Gage, who is also working this lawsuit, says he's represented more than a dozen Beverly Hills city employees who have sued the police department for various forms of discrimination. I let me smell I'm yellow! <laughs> this video made by Beverly Hills police officers in 2015 made fun of blacks and Asians and was posted on YouTube. In another case, Captain Mark Rosen won a $2.3 million settlement against the city after alleging discrimination because he was Jewish. Gage says this current case is finally forcing change. The three top people that were running this department have now either left or said they're going to leave. He's referring to Police Chief Sandra Spagnoli, who resigned in April, Captain Scott Dowling, who resigned earlier this year, and Assistant Chief Mark Coopwood, who just announced he will resign in October. It was Operation Safe Street. Crump warns more must be done to prevent something worse from happening to minorities here. No more. No more, no more Beverly Hills. Okay, so that is from uh, ABC Channel 7 affiliate out of uh, Beverly Hills, California. Uh, we're going to talk some more about this on the other side of the break. Uh, there was a good uh, article from the Washington Post on this, and we talked about it on Roland Martin Unfiltered as well so we're going to let you hear that segment also uh you listen to the african history network show right here on 910 a on the superstation uh wfdf i'm your host brother michael m hotel uh we'll be back in a few minutes gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. 
Start your free trial today. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. The Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation. Feature Radio. I'm your host, Brother Mike Lim Hotel. It is Friday, um, September 3rd, 2021, and we are live. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. 313-778-7600. Okay, uh, so right before the break, we were talking about the uh, lawsuit that was filed uh, in Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills, California. Uh, it's a class action lawsuit, and um, it's filed by Attorney Benjamin Crump. And it alleges um, racial profiling, basically racial profiling. And uh, from March uh, 2020 to July 2021, um, 106 people were arrested because of Operation Safe Street and uh, the and Rodeo Drive Task Force. 106 people arrested. Um, it just so happens 105 of those people were African Americans. Uh, so I'm not sure how that happened, but it just so happens 105 of them were African-Americans. So we were talking about this before the break. We shared the clip from uh, ABC Channel 7 uh, out of uh, Beverly Hills. And I want to go back to the article here uh, from the Washington Post as well uh, that talks about this story. And uh, this piece from the Washington Post is uh, from... Uh, September 3rd. So if you go back to the article here, it says that uh, now the, the Beverly Hills police chief, Dominique Rivetti, released a statement uh, on Wednesday, okay, uh, Wednesday, September 1st, addressing uh, the allegations. And he said, um, quote, the women and men of the BHPD, Beverly Hills Police Department, take an oath to protect human life and enforce the law regardless of race. Quote, any violation, any violation uh, of this pledge is contrary to the values of this department. We take all concerns regarding the conduct of our officers very seriously. Now, during a, during a Wednesday news conference uh, announcing the lawsuit, a 
attorney Benjamin Crump, uh, the attorney best known for representing the family of George Floyd, framed the alleged racial bias in Beverly Hills as a national scourge that has led to the death or injury of people whose names are synonymous with racially biased and violent policing. Okay. Racially biased and violent policing. And, you know, when I, when I first, when I first saw the headlines, uh, well, well, first of all, I read the statement from, um, Dominic Rivetti, the police chief. I read the statement and I'm like, well, wait a second. You're not, uh, addressing you're not really addressing the allegations but the other thing is you didn't realize there was a problem before now i mean did you, you didn't hear about the results of the task force and how many people were being arrested and almost all of them were african-american that didn't set off like alarms for you anything like that you know if african-americans are like two percent of the population in beverly hills and they're like 99 percent of the people you're arresting that it caused me to ask questions now, um, Attorney Benjamin Crump said, if implicit bias goes unchecked and discrimination goes unchecked, it leads to what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis, what happened to Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, what happened to Jacob Blake Jr. in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He said, that's what happens if the actions of the Beverly Hills Police Department uh, goes unchecked. All right, now, let's see. Um, Dominique Rivetti, police chief Dominique Rivetti, in his Wednesday statement said he formed his Rodeo Drive uh, team to address complaints from businesses about a rise in burglary, shoplifting, and nuisance. Okay, a rise in burglary, shoplifting, and nuisances such as public intoxication. Now, Dominique Rivetti, police chief, touted the success of the task force, noting that officers arrested individuals with, quote, fraudul with fraudulently attained, obtained state unemployment benefits and seizing $250,000 in cash and ill-gotten debit cards, okay? Dominique Rivetti, touted the success of the task force, noting that officers arrested individuals with, quote, fraudulently obtained state unemployment benefits, end quote, and, and seizing $250,000 in cash and ill-gotten debit cards. Now, the police did not respond to the Washington Post request for the number of arrests or their racial, or their racial breakdown. Attorney Gage said his team corroborated the figure through a variety of sources, including Beverly Hills police officers who were troubled by the trend that resulted from the 16-month safety operation. The more than 100 arrestees were cited for a range of non-criminal behaviors, non-criminal behaviors such as roller skating or riding a scooter on sidewalk to low-level infractions such as jaywalking. See, now this sounds like broken windows policing, broken windows policing, where you just crack down on little infractions 
with the hopes of keeping larger crimes from being from taking place. But did you, did it ever dawn on you while you arresting all these African Americans why people could be robbing you blind? Did did that ever cross your mind that that could be happening? While you over here arresting African Americans with jaywalking or riding on the sidewalk uh on the scooter or on or roller skating um you ever uh realize that white people could be robbing you blind now i want to know did they arrest anybody for riding on the sidewalk with skateboards because 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 white white male teenagers and white men in their 20s they they like riding on skateboards did you arrest anybody on skateboards i'm just curious now none of none of the same behaviors were enforced against white people the lawsuit claims none of the same behaviors and infractions were enforced against white people the lawsuit claims we talked about this on roland martin unfiltered okay we're going to go to it should be clip two ed just a second here uh yeah we're going to go to clip two uh we talked about this on roland martin unfiltered today and uh we also heard from attorney Terrain Bailey uh, on the show. Also, let's go to this clip. Uh, absolutely crazy. Uh, when you see these stories in California, the Beverly Hills Police Department is hit with a lawsuit claiming its officers arrest black people disproportionately. The complaint centers on the police department's uh, Operation Safe Street initiative. The suit claims that between March 2020 and July 2021, task force made 106 arrests, 105 of them black. Beverly Hills Police Department issued a statement which, uh, that says the following. The, the, the women and men of BHPD take an oath to protect human life and enforce the law, regardless of race. Any violation of this pledge is contrary to the values of this department. We take all concerns regarding the conduct of our officers very seriously. That's it. I mean, I'm just saying, Police Chief Dominic Rivetti, a train, 106 people arrested 105 black well, i don't know if you that, that, i mean that, that that that's the hell of a that's the hell of a ratio <laughs> so if you recall in 1992 um at the start of the riots in los angeles the officers didn't swarm to south central where um the majority of the um of the destruction and the violence was happening against people in our community they formed to the west side of Los Angeles, and they pretty much laid a boundary protecting Beverly Hills and that west side of Los Angeles. And they wouldn't let people cross over into there because they wanted to protect those stores and protect that property. The same thing is happening here. They see people of color and they assume that we can't afford to be there. They assume that we're there to commit crimes. And they have these task force out there that have the alleged probable cause for stops stopping people and these petty offenses when there are people committing real crimes. And it, it's just outrageous. And so it's, um, it goes back to that point about officers being there to protect and to serve. Who are there to protect? Who are they there to protect and to serve? And it doesn't feel like it's us. And I've said repeatedly that this is going to continue until we require that police officers live in the communities that they serve. Mm-hmm. Because as long as they continue to come into our communities and police us, then it's as if 
there at war with our community. And that's what's happening across the nation. Um, Brittany. I just need, I need an explanation. Cause that, that wasn't it. <laughs> like that, that really was not it. And I, and I think this goes back to the comment that I always make when we talk about policing um, and just echoing comments earlier. This is about protecting property and protecting the white and wealthy. It's never been about protecting. They are not interested in protecting black and brown community members. We know that in inner city communities, it takes the police three times longer to arrive. It is not about protecting us. It is not about protecting the working class. They care about protecting property and the white and the wealthy. It's the policing. Literally, we think about Ravenna Drive. It's the policing of what they believe should be a white owned area. And we may remove the signs that say white only, uh, but quite frankly, we know that there are certain spaces that they solely do not want us. There's no other way to explain this. Clearly, they can't even begin to explain it, right? The statement that they put out doesn't make any sense and doesn't explain what happens because it's not explainable. And I wonder at what point we are really going to continue to consider policing, you know, as it exists, because it is not for us. Yeah, uh, listen to that statement. I'm sitting there going, really? That's that's uh, that, that that's the best y'all can do, mother. That, that, that's when you know you've been had. Right. They can't say anything else without incriminating themselves. So this, so they put out that blanket statement, okay? And they just hope this case blows over. But you got you got Benjamin Crump and uh, Attorney Bradley Gage who filed this class action lawsuit. And what's interesting is. Uh, uh, Attorney Gage told the Washington Post that 2% of the residents of Beverly Hills are black, but almost 100% of the rest are black. That's a, that's a pretty clear indication something's wrong. So they can't defend it. 105 out of 106, okay? But this, so this goes to implicit bias. This goes to uh, uh, racial profiling probably as well. But the, the attorney here on the panel, Attorney Terrain, hit on something that I talked about in the previous segment, and we talked about this before. Uh, police have to live in the communities that they police. They have to come from those communities. Because when, when, when you do that, and this is why I say it, at the end of the day, many of us are going to have to apply to the police department and become the type of officers that we want to see and who serve and protect, who come from those communities, who are their protected communities, not come from outside, who are there to occupy the community and see those people as subhuman. Okay, so, you know, I, I'm glad this lawsuit is being filed. And this is a number of significant lawsuits that uh, Benjamin Crump has filed in the past couple of months. One against uh, Johnson & Johnson dealing with baby powder um, and uh, them targeting African-American women, marketing uh, uh, the Johnson baby powder African-American women after it was uh, linked to uh, uh, cancer. Uh, and then uh, there's, a, there's another one, a uh, significant one he just filed as well. I forgot the other one also. But, you know, this is this is uh, good news, but um, this is why you have to have uh, police reform as well. Make them pay. Make them pay. All right, y'all. Uh, okay. Going to break and come back. Pa pause right there. COVID. Pause right there. Okay. So, uh, th so that was from today, Roland Martin Unfiltered. All right. Now, if we uh, go back and look at this, then we're going to go to the R. Kelly trial. Um, go back and look at this piece here from Washington Post. Uh, Attorney Gage went on to say, quote, the way police stop them for trivial things is troubling as well. Uh, Attorney Gage said, alleging that African-Americans questioned by police would face four or five officers or have guns drawn on them. 
quote, white people don't do that, end quote. White people don't do that. Now, the two plaintiffs in the lawsuit were not California residents visiting from Philadelphia. During a visit to Beverly Hills last September, September 2020, Khalil White and Jasmine Williams were arrested while riding scooters on the sidewalk and jailed for resisting arrest, jailed for resisting arrest. The charges, like most of those that stem from the operation, were dropped. So if the operation was such a success, why were most of the charges dropped? Uh, Police Chief Dominic Rivetti, if most of the, if you're saying that it was, the operation was a success and you arrested 106 people, but most of the charges are dropped, then one, why were they arrested if you dropped the charges? Two, how are you saying the operation was a success? I'm not sure if your goal was to scare away African-Americans or what, but I'm just, I'm just trying to follow your logic. Now, the lawsuit claims that other incidents with police did not end in arrest, but indicate a pattern of harassment and over-policing of African-Americans. Uh, Salahi Bembury, then the vice president of men's footwear at, Versa at Versace, was allegedly jaywalking and holding two shopping bags from his store last October, October 2020, from his store when police stopped him, asked for his ID, and ran his name for warrants. Now, uh, Bimbery filmed the encounter, which went viral. He said, quote, so I'm in Beverly Hills and I'm getting searched for shopping at the store I work for and just being black, end quote, he said in the Instagram video. Now, Beverly, the Beverly Hills police uh, department officer said in response, quote, you're making a completely different narrative. So they should be held to account. Okay, so what was the narrative? What, what was the narrative? And how many, I want to know, how many white people do you stop under the same circumstance, circumstances? Now, the current iteration of the lawsuit focuses on the outcome of Operation Safe Streets. But Attorney Gage expects it will broaden to encompass a wider review of discriminatory policing by the Beverly Hills Police Department and expects the class of uh, complainants to grow tenfold. Expects the class of complainants to grow tenfold. Attorney Gage said, I don't think Ben and I, Ben Crump, I don't think Ben or I have had five minutes since the press conference that we haven't received phone calls. I've been getting them since midnight, he said. Now, since Wednesday, September 1st, attorney uh, Gage estimates uh, the legal team has received at least 100 new complaints, okay? Attorney Bradley Gage, he estimates that since Wednesday, the legal team has received at least 100 new complaint, uh, complaints of racial profiling 
in traffic stops and other claims of discrimination from around the same period as Operation Safe Streets. Okay, so you'll probably hear more about this. TheGrill.com also has an article regarding this as well. Um, so here we have racial profiling. We understand racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. We have African-Americans, it appears, targeted by police. I, I want to know what were white people still in while you were targeting African-Americans. That's what I want to know. Okay. <laughs> what, <laughs> that's, that's what I want to know. What were white people stealing while you were targeting African-Americans? <laughs> Read this piece here from the uh, Washington Post. A Beverly Hills police task force arrested 106 people. All but one were black lawsuit claims. Okay. <laughs> All right. So today was day 12 in the trial of R. Kelly. And we didn't talk about uh, the trial uh, yesterday. So we're going to recap a little bit uh, day 11. Day 11. Uh, Thursday, September 2nd was day 11 in the R. Kelly trial. Um, you had a uh, you, you had a woman by the name of Alexis who uh, testified on day 11. And she testified, let me see, hold on. Uh, yeah, she day 11, Thursday. Uh, Alexis told the jury she met R. Kelly at a concert in Jacksonville, Florida during his lighted up tour in 2006 when she was 15 going on 16. Um, USA Today has some reporting about day 11 in the trial. And then also we're gonna go to uh, the Black News Channel. Candace Kelly, um, we'll, we'll go to clip, uh, clip number three. Um, it, We'll go to clip number three from the Black News Channel here in just a second. Uh, Candace Kelly, who is a uh, legal analyst for the Black News Channel and we're sometimes co-panelists on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Um, she was on the Black News Channel today talking about what happened uh, on Thursday. But uh, very quickly here, I want to look at this uh, article here from the... We'll look at this article here from USA Today. Um, R. Kelly trial reluctant witness says she had friendship turned sexual relationship with star starting at age 15. Okay, and let me pull this up here from uh, USA Today. All right, just a second here. Okay, so. Um, R. Kelly is not charged with crimes in connection with Alexis's allegations. All right. He's not charged with crimes in uh, connection to her allegations. She is one of multiple witnesses. Prosecutors intend um, to call to bolster their case against R. Kelly as the alleged head of a criminal enterprise, as the alleged head of a criminal enterprise. Uh, who sexually abused and preyed on underage girls, okay? Uh, 
So Alexis testified on day 11. Now, she testifies she was invited backstage by someone uh, in his entourage to meet R. Kelly following the Jacksonville uh, concert. Then he uh, then met him the next day on his tour bus in a mall parking lot. She says she signed a non-disclosure agreement there. Uh, did they ever discuss her age? Uh, she was asked. She said, I may have, she said. She said, R. Kelly seemed to be uh, amenable at the time to a platonic friendship. Now, Alexis acknowledged under questioning by prosecutors that she did not want to testify at the trial and she had hazy memories of when and where alleged sexual encounters with R. Kelly first began and her age at the time. She said, I don't recall how old I was, she said. It's hard. It was 16 years ago. Now, how often did they have sex, she was asked. She, was asked. she said, I don't really recall. Uh, she, uh, she, she said, she said her first sexual contact with him was at his suburban Chicago home, but they did not always have sex when they met. Now I want to go to, um, uh, I want to go to this clip here from the black news channel. Uh, Candace Kelly is recapping, uh, what happened in day 11, uh, of the trial. Let's go to this clip, uh, clip number three here. Joining us now is Justice Correspondent Candace Kelly for more on the trial. And Candace, let's talk about the witness who calls herself Alexis. She testified uh, that the defense attorney chose not to cross-examine her. So why is that significant? This is very significant because certainly when you are part of the prosecutorial team, you want to make sure that your witnesses are tight. You want to make sure that they say exactly what you want them to say. And I'm not sure what happened in preparation, but this was a witness who got on stand that couldn't remember when she first had sexual relationships uh, with R. Kelly. And that's really the core of why we are in court here. She was said that she was hazy in terms of some of her memories, in terms of things that just generally happened. And she was also very reluctant and said that she was reluctant to be up there. So the fact that the defense team said, you know what? She's really inconsequential. We're not even going to cross-examine her. There's not any information that we need from her. She's spoken on behalf of herself in a way that makes us look good already. So, in fact, we'll just leave her alone. What she said works for us because she wasn't a very solid witness. So this is very significant that they would bring this person on the stand and that she would not really do the job that they hoped she would do. The DNA expert testified that he examined semen on a shirt that Geronda Pace claimed actually belonged to R. Kelly. So how important are these findings? You know, they're important and they're not important. They're important because of the fact that these are, in fact, semen stains that belong to R. Kelly. The problem with this is when did this happen, right? When did um, and do they believe this particular witness? If we go back, she was one of the first women to testify in this case with details that went on behind the scenes. She was also the one to have lied about her age. So when we look at all those moving parts, you have to think, how was the jury receiving this? She also received monies already in terms of uh, cases that, uh, she has uh, filed against R. Kelly, and they settled them out of court in terms of uh, cut money, if you will. So when we look at this T-shirt, this and if it does, in fact, have semen by R. Kelly, which by the court, that was a clear um, indication that was happening or that happened, 
what does that really mean? When did this T-shirt become, um, you know, become in, in this situation? Is this a T-shirt that belongs to someone else? Did, did this actually take place to Deronda Pate when she was underage? So that's really what's going to be key here, just connecting the dots in the T-shirt. Otherwise, it's just a T-shirt that could be from anybody at any time, um, and, and she's just connecting her narrative to it. Wow. There was also a computer forensic expert who took the stand, and he examined texts from R. Kelly's phone. Did they reveal anything new? You know, they didn't reveal anything new specifically, but here's what we have. We have in writing someone from the Department of Homeland Security's work, and here's what he found. He found a text um, on the iPhone of R. Kelly from years ago saying, you're young, there's a lot of things you don't know. I want to groom you and be bonded with you. And this is a text that this Department of Homeland Security um, representative, Chris Wilson, said that he found in a text message. So this is very significant because you finally see R. Kelly at least saying a little something, acknowledging that he may be interested in young women. The problem with that, once again, for the defense is going to be, well, how young is young? If he wants to be bonded with a young woman and groom them, even though we've been hearing that from other witnesses, I mean, 19 is young, 20 is young also. Was he talking about a 15 or 14-year-old? This doesn't really say uh, specifically, you know, what's behind this text. I do want to note that this person from the Department of Homeland Security, they actually looked into laptops. They looked into several phones that were owned by R. Kelly. And I think that we're going to hear more in terms of what was on these technical, what was on these technical devices. I think that we're going to hear a little bit more specifically because this particular person, his nickname is Chris Wilson, he said, listen, he was able to retrieve everything that was on these uh, computers, on these iPads, on these tech phones, phones. So we're, I think that we're definitely going to hear more from them in order for the prosecution to make the case. So, Candace, it sounds like from your perspective, it was a win for the defense. Why is that? Well, you know, the defense is in a situation where they're looking at the prosecution flying around but not necessarily kind of quite landing the plane. We have a, a number of pieces of evidence that are, are, are mounting up so that the prosecution can ultimately kind of add some glue to the case and connect all of these witnesses to talk about the RICO and the underlying claims that make up this particular RICO law. So the defense had a good day in that there was a a witness that took the stand that didn't prove to be a very good witness, and you did have evidence by the Department of Homeland Security and a DNA expert, but you couldn't necessarily connect the dots that these were pieces of evidence that were connected directly to R. Kelly. So out of all the days so far, I think that this has been one of the strongest days for the defense. Fascinating. Justice Correspondent Candace Kelly, thank you so much for your insight and your perspective this morning. And don't forget. Okay. All right. Pause it right there. Pause right there. Okay. So we've got, uh, that's from the Black News Channel from September 3rd, 2021. Um, R. Kelly accuser hesitant to share details of alleged, of alleged sexual relationship. And that was legal analyst uh, Candace Kelly that you heard. Okay. So if we look, uh, we're going to go to this clip here from uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, here Ed, in just a second. Um, so that was day 11. Day 12. You had a woman by the name of Kate who testified, and uh, Yahoo News reported on this. Uh, R. Kelly paid $200,000 to settle a lawsuit with the woman who said he gave her herpes, okay? Uh, she said, uh, Kate, whose allegations 
aren't included in the charges against R. Kelly said she dated the singer from 2011, uh, from, from 2000, uh, dated the singer from 2001 to 2004, from 2001 to 2004. Um, and a Chicago woman who engaged in the sexual relationship with R. Kelly between 2001 and 2004 said the singer paid her a $200,000 settlement after she sued him over herpes. Now, the woman who testified in court on Friday, September 3rd, uh, under the name of Kate, said that she had asked R. Kelly whether he had any sexually transmitted diseases and did not get a clear response from him. She said R. Kelly told her he would he would not be using a condom. At some point after having sex with him in 2001, Kate noticed a small bump and a burning sensation in her vaginal area, which she said was later diagnosed as herpes. She said uh, R. Kelly uh, was her only sexual partner at the time. Okay, now those watching on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, the African History Network and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Keep watching. Uh, we're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. I'll share this uh, excerpt of Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, as well. Uh, be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Register for uh, the 10-week online course I teach on, on the weekends from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And we do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. We, uh, you can go back and watch them over and over again. As soon as you register this bonus content, you can watch. Uh, the classes are regularly uh, $100. Uh, uh, regularly, the classes are regularly $130 on sale, $80. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. We do this class on Saturdays, uh, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then also the other class is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school, we do that on Sundays. All right, right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you uh, next time. Peace. All right, stand by. Okay, um, we're gonna go ahead and continue here. I'm gonna continue. We're gonna go ahead with this segment from Roland Martin Unfiltered from today. Uh, be sure to register for the online courses. As soon as you register this bonus content, you can start watching. All right. And I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, uh, all that information. And even after the class is over with, you can go back and watch it. So next year, you can go back and watch the entire course. Uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. So this one picks up where understanding the transatlantic slave trade leaves off. You can watch them in any order. The courses in any order. But each class we go through and analyze an approximately 10 year period of history to see what happened to us after the Civil War ended. What happened to us after slavery ended, after the Civil War? What were the laws and policies put in place to help put us in the predicament where we are in today so we understand where we need to go from here? All right. And then also, if you'd like to stop your information and uh, want to support the African History Network, you could do so through Cash App. Um, Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. 
paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. We're here six days a week. This helps us keep doing the research and stay on the air, keep broadcasting. This is our official Cash App account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. When you go to it, it'll say Michael and show my picture there. All right. So uh, I want to go back to, uh, let's go back to this article here from uh, Yahoo News dealing with day 12 in the R. Kelly trial. Uh, Okay, so Kate testified today. Now, due to the diagnosis, quote, I didn't know if uh, there would be potential medical costs that would not be covered uh that, that that would not be covered by insurance uh she said in explaining why she sued r kelly now um robert sylvester kelly r kelly is on trial in brooklyn for a long list of federal sex crimes including allegations that he ran a criminal enterprise that recruited girls boys and women for sex some accusers say they contracted herpes from r kelly who never disclosed um, his STD his STD status to them? Kate's allegations are not included in those charges. Now she's the fourth woman to testify in this trial that R. Kelly gave her herpes. Uh, R. Kelly has pleaded not guilty to all of the charges against him. Um, okay, now Kate, who is more than a decade o- older than many of the accusers who testified during the first few weeks of the trial, says she met R. Kelly when she was 27. Uh, she did not travel out of state to visit him like the other young women, saying she had an established professional career that kept kept her busy and only allowed her to see R. Kelly when he was in Chicago. And this is a drawing of R. Kelly in court uh, also. Okay, now I want to go to, let's see, let's cue this up here. So now on 9, 10 a.m. Anymore. Let's see here. Let's cue this clip up here. So this is from Roland Martin and Filter today. And we discussed the case. All right, folks, day 12 of the R. Kelly trial and a woman identified as Kate uh, testified uh, she dated R. Kelly, and he paid her $200,000 to settle a lawsuit she brought accusing him of giving her herpes, she told jurors. When they began having sex, she told him that she was worried about STDs, but he refused to use protection. On yesterday, federal prosecutors called DNA experts to take the stand. The expert, Yang Fei Wu, testified that he found semen on a blue shirt that one of the R&B stars' accusers said she saved. Earlier in the trial, uh, Geronda Pace recalled her last day at Kelly's home, saying he spit on her, slapped her, and choked her until she passed out after he flew into a rage because she texted a friend. What about panel, Terrain Bailey, attorney, uh, Michael M. Hotep, host the African History Network, Brittany Lee Lewis, political analyst. So, attorney Bailey, how you doing? We'll start with you. Um, you are defense attorney. As you look at this trial, you've seen how the prosecution is laying, laying this out. Do you believe that they are moving closer to proving the charges or... Does things like this testimony saying he gave her herpes, how does that actually relate to what he is charged with? 
the testimony about um, R. Kelly not listening to the woman saying she wanted to use a condom goes to the issue of consent, to, which is the whole issue in this case that uh, regarding trafficking and the abuse of women, that he's not listening to women and that he is abusing them. So in many states, the, with some, giving someone a sexual transmitted disease is grounds for a felony charge. So here, the prosecution is doing its job and laying the groundwork for a conviction here. What's interesting is how the defense attorneys are handling this information. Um, uh, to the folks at audio, I'm getting lots of feedback there, so I'm not quite sure who's my phone is coming from. Um, um, when you say uh, the defense, uh, speak to that. Uh, is it that they have not much to work with? Because, you, again, what seems to be consistent is that they are attacking folks saying, oh, did you cut a deal? Is that why you're testifying? When a lot of the women who are testifying, they aren't charged with anything. Well... The defense doesn't really have much to work with here because there's so many victims and so many allegations that are consistent. So the only thing that they can do is really try to attack the credibility of each of, this, each of these women and try to say that there's another motive or other incentives for why they're going after him in this way, okay. such as monetary gain. Uh, Brittany, um, what is interesting about, about this, as we have uh, been covering this, you still have people out there who are Art and R. Kelly fans. I got people who are tweeting me saying, oh, you're not telling the whole story. You need to get the transcripts of the trial. These people are lying. Uh, they're not doing a good job. There are inconsistencies. I mean, we're, all of this, I mean, it, it, it is very interesting, again, with, with the documentaries being done, with the stories being done, with all the different things, you still have people who are saying, oh, Robert Sylvester Kelly is being railroaded. misogynist to be clear if you are keeping for r kelly you are a misogynist period um and, and i guess my question would be at what point do we start loving black women um when are we going to actually hold these abusers accountable Brittany, I, Brittany, i'm getting i'm getting Brittany, i'm getting tweets from black women you know what's funny is that misogyny, the same way that I say we, ha we have black, uh, excuse the language, black Uncle Toms running around, right, who have also internalized white supremacy. There are also black women who have internalized their own, the misogyny within the, within the community, right, who are also affected by the patriarchy. And I'm sorry that that, that is happening. It is unfortunate, but the reality is we need to start loving each other. We need to love black women. And most importantly, start believing victims, right? Um, when are we going to hold these people accountable? And it really is unfortunate, Roland, because it's not just for Kelly. We're talking about any time a black woman is is raped, she's battered, she's abused. Look at some of these comments related to Fabulous, related to Chris Brown, even related to Nas. People are just like, no way, right? Oh, but we still want to support, we still want to and it's all fun and games until it's that person's child or that person's sister or that person's mother. And then it's, well, why is anybody supporting me and mine? And, and why, why does it always have to be the proximity to a loved one to understand that there are abusers in our community and that need to be held accountable? Michael. You know, uh, Roland, I've been uh, covering this case uh, since day one. And this is uh, every day, man. You know, there, there's some deep, first of all, there's some details that I don't even share on my show. This is, this is some sick stuff. When you, when you read the testimony, um, you know, Faith's father, um, on day 10, uh, uh, the third woman who accused R. Kelly of exposing her to herpes, her name was Faith. She testified. Her father 
is a pastor. He was there at the trial and he was outside of the trial. And there were R female R. Kelly supporters who were berating him, you know, and, um, you, you know, we talked about this last Friday on your show, the most disrespected woman in America, or the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. And we're seeing this here a second time. We saw this in the first trial. We see this again a second time here. And uh, today, um, this woman who testified, she's the fourth woman. Uh, her name, uh, they're using the name Kate. She's the fourth woman to testify in this trial to accuse, that accused R. Kelly of exposing her to herpes. And, uh, you know, brother, we have to stand up to defend African-American women. But also, I, I just had a quick question for the attorney here, uh, if I could. Um, I, I just wanted to know, the, the charges are rac one count of racketeering and right. eight counts of violation of the Mann Act, which is interstate sex trafficking. And I, I just wanted to know, how is the, the, how is the prosecution doing uh, presenting their case regarding the one count of racketeering? How are they doing in, in regards to that? They're, well, let me start first with the trafficking. They're doing an excellent job with the trafficking because they're showing mm -hmm. the, per, the plane tickets and the traveling across state yes. lines. The racketeering, yes. I see them moving in that direction as aggressively. And I'm, I'm assuming that they're going to do that through other witnesses because I haven't seen as much of that from the current the witnesses that have testified thus far. I mean, we've had right. some testimony from people from R. Kelly's um, camp that have assisted mm -hmm. you know, these meetups with the women backstage and um, assisting with introducing them to these women. But the racketeering case, from my perspective, is not as strong as the trafficking case at this point. Okay. All right. Thank you. So, um, obviously, the defense will have an opportunity to put their, uh, the, uh, their case on. Uh, right. This is one, <coughs> one of three, three cases he actually faces Drain, uh, and so, um, do you believe that as this move forward, uh, this jury of seven men and five women uh, are going to listen to this harrowing testimony? And as you said, I mean, it's it's very gritty. It's extremely. Uh, when you talk about the choking, one woman said that uh, he 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 forced her to uh, perform oral sex on him. A gun was nearby. There was a man who testified that R. Kelly performed oral sex on him. I mean, I mean, when you, I mean, just day after day, uh, just extremely graphic testimony, uh, and uh, that, that this jury is hearing every single day. This testimony is exhausting for a jury, day after day. To, and each detail gets more gruesome and more detailed, and so the jury can become exhausted with these facts. So by the time the defense gets to their case, they're going to have to try something new to mitigate some of these allegations. And the only thing they can really go for is jury nullification. And jury nullification is when you say, okay, these are the facts, okay? But look at it from this point of view. These women, regardless of their age, consented to being initially involved with R. Kelly. And then they take it from there and they start showing how this may have been more consensual and part of sexual preferences more so than abuse. But that is going to be a hard sell to a jury, but you're going to have to ask the jury to set aside all their reason and all their common sense and say these women, all, all these women agree to this behavior and this treatment. Um, this is going to be, again, something we're going to continue to follow and we certainly will see uh, what happens next in this case. But uh, it is uh, just very significant uh, with this level of testimony. Let's go to Minnesota. All right.
All right, so that was uh, today on Roland Martin Unfiltered, September 3rd. Uh, I'm, I'm going to post a link here. You can listen to, you can watch the entire show. Uh, this is on, uh, this is the link to the show on YouTube. And, you know, on Thursday's show, Roland announced his uh, new his streaming platform, the, uh, the Black Star um streaming platform black star media and it's on amazon prime it's on roku it's on all these streaming devices xbox so you can watch roland martin unfiltered there and when i'm on the show like today you can watch me there as well and he's he's uh this is going to be his 24-hour streaming platform that uh, you can watch on different platforms okay you can download the app it's a it's a, a app also on android and iphone um uh android and apple platforms uh so i downloaded the app uh on uh android to my smartphone yesterday okay and you can watch it there also they're going to be shows that he's going to have uh as well different shows he's setting up a 24-hour uh digital streaming platform okay so that's going to be huge all right this is the link here to uh the show from today I'll post this link here through the broadcast all right so we got it there all right very very quickly the online course I teach on Saturdays from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. I just want to uh, do a quick overview of the, some of the content in that class. All right. So it's a 10 week online course. And uh, you can register for it at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Right on the home page, just scroll down, you'll see the information there. Click on register here. It takes you to the next page and just click on enroll. But in the class, I do a PowerPoint presentation. We, we, do, we look at a timeline of history also. Um, we go, we have book references, articles, etc. So we start in about 1865, last year of the Civil War. And we know 1865, chattel slavery ends as well with the 13th Amendment. Civil War ends April of um, 1865 also. Uh, basically, for all practical purposes, April 9th, 1865. General William T. Uh, uh, General Robert E. Lee uh, surrenders to uh, 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 surrenders, and so we look at the Civil War. And we do a recap of history leading up to the Civil War. Also, uh, we look at uh, uh, June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-five, Juneteenth as well, Galveston, Texas, and then we go look at the Reconstruction era, eighteen sixty-five to eighteen seventy-seven. And during this 14-year period of uh, time, the U.S. government took steps to try and integrate the nation's newly freed African-American population into society. Between 1863 and 1877, the U.S. government undertook the task 
of integrating nearly 4 million formerly enslaved people into society after the Civil War bitterly divided the country over the issue of slavery. A white slave holding South that had built its economy and culture on slave labor was now forced by its defeat in a war that claimed 620,000 lives to change its economic, political, and social relations with African-Americans. Okay, now these are some slides from the class. Uh, so to go through and look at the uh, Reconstruction era, and we look at what in the Reconstruction, the uh, 1876 presidential election between uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel, uh, Samuel J. Tilden, which leads to the Compromise of 1877, which uh, uh, ends Reconstruction. We look at Special Field Order Number 15, also known as 40 Acres and the Mule. Special Field Order Number 15, also known as 40 Acres and the Mule. And uh, we, we look at what it was and how it ended. Um, and it, it did not apply to all of the former slaves. Okay, there was 400,000 acres of coastal land in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And it's going to be divided up by, uh, by among about 40,000 African-American families. It did not apply to all the land in the South. It did not apply to all, basically all African-Americans. Uh, 40 acres in the mule. And it's going to, uh, the land is going to be taken back by President Johnson, President Andrew Johnson, who succeeds Lincoln, who was sympathetic to the South. Okay. And, you know, and also one of the things that's interesting about special field order number 15 is that the land that was given, it was supposed to be self-governed African. It, it was only supposed to be inhabited by African-Americans and it was supposed to be self, uh, we were supposed to govern ourselves. It's going to be like a nation within a nation. We talk about Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger delivering uh, General, uh, General Order Number 3, okay? And uh, what that was all about and set the, and set the history straight dealing with uh, Juneteenth as well. Juneteenth is important for us to commemorate and celebrate, celebrate, but we have to set the history straight and deal with the fact that all the enslaved Africans in, in Texas were not freed, number one. Number two, uh, because some are going to be held until the following season, following year, 1866, and not going to be freed until then. And the 13th and the Emancipation Proclamation is not what freed enslaved Africans is the 13th Amendment, because when you read the Emancipation Proclamation, you can go to LOC.gov and not, we show it to you in the class also. When you read the Emancipation Proclamation, it basically tells you that the slaves in the border states, Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, they're still enslaved, but the slaves in the states of rebellion in the Confederacy, the Confederate states and territories, they're free. Well, the Union and Lincoln had no authority to dictate to the Confederacy what to do. They had no authority to say that the slaves were freed or what have you, because th those uh, Confederate states seceded from the government, set up their own government. You have no control over them. This is why you needed the 13th Amendment. Okay, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free the enslaved Africans. And those in the states, those in the territories that stayed with the Union were allowed to keep their slaves also. 
Okay, so we go through and break down uh, this history as well. We talk about the 13th Amendment, what it was. Mid people misunderstand and think there's a loophole in it that re-enslaved uh, African-Americans. No, that's not true. The 13th Amendment is based upon the um, uh, based upon the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. The same law talking about um, uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall be duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any uh, place subject to the jurisdiction. That law already already applied to white men. That law already applied to white men. That's based upon the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. What they're doing is after slavery ends, they're given the same rights that white men have. They're given those to African-Americans. The same thing applied to white men. Okay. The, the, the 13th Amendment didn't re-enslave them. Okay. That's, that's a total misunderstanding of history. I interviewed Dr. Daryl Scott, a uh, history professor at Howard University. We talked about this and we've re-aired that broadcast here on our social media platforms and it's archived on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel. And he went through, because he teaches a class from slavery to, mis to uh, mass incarceration. And he went through and dispelled this whole myth. Uh, and back at the time, 1865 and at, during this um, Reconstruction era, all that stuff. Back at that time, people weren't talking about a loophole in the 13th Amendment and re-enslaving us, anything, things like that. You know, this is, is just, um, he talks about 13thers. And this was one of the premise of the documentary from Ava DuVernay, 13, that the uh, 13th Amendment had a loophole that re-enslaved this, this, this nonsense. No, that's not historically accurate. That's not what happened. Um, there was an article from, uh, there was an article that he talked about when, uh, I interviewed him because he traces some of this myth to a prisoner in California back in the sixties, um, named Lee Wood. And let me see if I can bring up this, uh. I'm going to bring up this article here. Uh, I'm not sure where to find it. But he traced this, he traced that myth. Uh, Lee Wood was a prisoner in uh, California in the 1960s. And he was reading the 13th Amendment and thought that that's why he was in prison. And this is where Dr. Daryl Scott was basically traced that back to. Um, let's see here. What was the name of that article? Okay, yeah. Daryl Scott, bad history and worse social science have replaced, have replaced truth. Read this article here from History News Network.
History News Network, uh, March 10th, 2021. Daryl Scott with one R, D-A-R-Y-L. Dr. Daryl Scott, bad history and worse social science have replaced truth. And he deals with this whole, what he calls 13thers, who deal with this myth that mass incarceration was because of the 13th Amendment and all this other nonsense. Um, the interviewer here who interviewed him in this, for this piece said, as you explain the theory that the 13th Amendment allowed for the functional re-enslavement of free blacks emerged, not from professional scholars, but from the incarcerated activist Lee Wood, Lee Wood in the 1960s. It was a powerful tool for consciousness raising in that context. And at first, Dr. Daryl Scott thought it was Angela Davis who came up with that theory, but it wasn't. He said, I had no idea where it came from initially within the academy. I, tra I traced it back to Angela Davis. She did, she did not make that big a deal of it. It was a passing comment, a little hyperbole in an essay usually means nothing. He said, when I started going back and searching, I learned about Lee Wood, the guy who was in prison in California and said he discovered this. He had an epiphany when he read the 13th Amendment among a group of prisoners. You could, un you could understand that. The claim by prisoners is from the very beginning a weapon in the struggle to change their world. Okay, so read this here. There's more nonsense like the Willie Lynch letter. Willie Lynch never historically existed either. The Willie Lynch letter has been proven to be a fraud and Willie Lynch never historically existed. Okay, so read that. Okay, let's go back here. Uh, okay, so these are some of the things we deal with in class. We do look at the 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, 14th Amendment guaranteed citizenship. Uh, 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote for African-American men. This is, then it's expanded to African-American women um, uh, later. Because uh, you, you had the 19th Amendment of 1920 and then Booting Rights Act in 1965. We talk about Sarah Rector, who was the richest Afro-American girl in the world, well, in, the, in the country. And uh, she becomes a millionaire at about age 12 or 13. She's a millionaire in the early 1900s. Um, and she's of... Um, former uh, enslaved Creek Indian ancestry and she gets land because of the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 and the Black Freedom Indian Treaties of 1866. Her and her family get land and oil is discovered on her land. She becomes a millionaire. Uh, we talk about the 15th Amendment as well. Also, nowhere in the U.S. Constitution does it give anyone the right to vote. Nowhere in the U.S. Constitution does it give anyone the right to vote, but the 15th Amendment guarantees the right to vote. Um, and this only applied to African-American men in uh, 1870 when it was ratified. So we talk about the force acts, the, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. We talk about the four force acts in U.S. history. Uh, there were a series of four acts passed by Republican uh, Reconstruction supporters in the in, in Congress between May 31st, 1870 and March 1st, 1875 to protect the constitutional rights guaranteed to African-Americans by the 14th and 15th Amendment. Uh, we know that the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 uh, was used in October 1871 by President Ulysses S. Grant to declare martial law in nine counties in South Carolina to crack down on the activities of the Ku Klux Klan who are threatening 
uh, African American and white Republican elected officials and, and you know things like this, beating them up, etc. Uh, we talk about the Freedmen's Bureau in the Freedmen's Bank, 1865, 1866, the Freedmen's Bureau and the Freedmen's Bank uh, as well, and and why the Freedmen's Bank collapsed in 1874. Um, we deal with different massacres that take place. Colfax massacre, 1873, Vicksburg massacre, uh, uh, 1874 in, in uh, uh, Mississippi. Uh, we talk about the assault on African-American voting rights. What's taking place right now? We see this going back to um, after the Civil War ended, especially, and then uh, Texas State Constitution, 1876, Mississippi State Constitution, which, imp which implemented the Mississippi Plan the Mississippi plan to suppress African-American voting rights, institute poll taxes and literacy tests. And they had a Mississippi State, uh, Mississippi State Convention in 1890. And um, the, the, the white county judge who presided over the state convention, his name was Solomon Saladin Calhoun. And he said, we are here to exclude the Negro. He said, let's, let's not uh, play around with, with the reason why we're here. We're here to exclude the Negro. And at this time, 1890, the majority of the population of Mississippi were African-Americans. And here you have the minority population, white, white people, specifically white men, who are then instituting poll tax and literacy tests and obstacles to African-American voting to crack down on us voting so they can fully take back control of state legislatures and things like this, fully take back political control. And this is what's taking place today as, as white people have a negative birth rate, as the U.S. Census just showed, and uh, their population dropped by uh, about 5%. Okay, they dropped below 60% uh, the first time in U.S. history. Uh, you have white Republicans fighting back in state legislatures trying to maintain power. Uh, James Vardaman in 1890, uh, who served in the Mississippi State Legislature, said there is no no use to equivocate or lie about the matter. In Mississippi, we have in our constitution legislated against the racial peculiarities of the Negro. When that device fails, we will resort to something else. They were trying to neutralize the political power that African-Americans had. The impact of the, of the legislation in 1890 at the Mississippi State Convention and they instituted under the new literacy requirement, a potential voter had to be able to read any section of the Mississippi State Constitution or understand any section when read to him or give a reasonable interpretation of any section. OK, this became known as the Mississippi plan. And then the Mississippi plan is then going to be adopted by other southern states to crack down on African-American political power and to suppress our vote. South Carolina, Alabama, these other Southern states are going to adopt this also. It was known as the Mississippi plan. The impact of the legislation from Mississippi in 1890 was swift. By 1910, registered voters uh, among African-Americans dropped to 15% in Virginia and under 2% in both Alabama, Mississippi. Okay. The, 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 uh, effect that these southern states adopting variations of this Mississippi plan, we're going to see the impact in African-American voter turnout. 
registered voters by 1910 registered voters among african-americans dropped to 15 percent in virginia and under two percent in both alabama and mississippi according to historian donald g nyman in his book promises to keep african-americans and the constitutional order 1776 to to the present all right um we talk about the all-white primaries things like this like in texas okay so we look at these tools that were used to suppress our vote and attack us uh they're waging political war at the ballot box and with laws and then this political violence with massacres that were taking place we look at things like the uh, so we look at uh, we go through the jim crow era look at Plessy versus Ferguson 1896 uh we look at uh, World War One 1914 1918 the Great Migration 1915 to 1970 where you have about six million African Americans migrating from the south up north and out west the Great Migration is totally going to change the country and as we're moving up north as we're moving to different communities we're going to see racial tensions explode also uh, in 1919, the year after the Civil War ends, I'm sorry, sorry the new year after World War I ends, 1919, we have the Red Summer of 1919, where you have over 25 major race riots in this country. But we look at the Great Migration, the Harlem Renaissance, the impact of the Great Migration as well. By the end of 1919, some one million African-Americans had left the South, usually traveling by train, boat, or bus. A smaller number had automobiles or even horse-drawn carts. In the decade between 1910 and 1920, the African-American population of major northern cities grew by large percentages, including New York, which grew by 66 percent, Chicago by 148 percent, Philadelphia by 500 percent, and Detroit by 611 percent, just from 1910 to 1920. OK, um, so we look at this and we go through uh, World War II and look at things like the New Deal and the GI Bill. Uh, 1920s, we look at the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. We look at October 29th, 1929 and the stock market crash and then leading to the Great Depression and then going into World War II. OK, um, it's, and we look at things like the uh, movie The Birth of a Nation, which rejuvenates the Ku Klux Klan, comes out February 8th, 1915. All right. And the protest that we launched against the movie The Birth of a Nation as well. That's Oscar Michaud. Um, and we were fighting back against negative stereotypical images of African-Americans with movies that we're putting out. Um, in the early 1900s, we had about 150 production companies, some completely owned by African-Americans, some partly owned by African-Americans. And Oscar Michaud was the most uh, well-known prolific director of this era from 1918 to 1948. He directed, produced 44 movies, okay? Read Blacks in American Films and Television, an illustrated encyclopedia by Donald Bogle, which is a fantastic book. So we look at the, the, the Red Summer, we look at the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, we look at things like Rosewood Massacre, January, January 1923, uh, Chicago Race Riot 1919 during the Red Summer. Also, we look at the Harlem Renaissance from 1910s through the 1930s, Universal Negro Improvement Association, Marcus Garvey's uh, uh, movement and organization, 1914, founded in Jamaica. He comes to the U.S. in 1916, starts setting up chapters as well. Uh, we look at uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson and Association for, uh, for the uh, Study of Negro Life and History, uh, September 9th, 1915, founded and then uh, grows through the 1920s and then the uh, formation of Negro History Week, February 1926, all this. So we take you throughout history to understand 
uh, what happened after slavery ended, okay? What were African-Americans doing? What were the movements we were involved in? What obstacles were we facing? What were laws and policies put in place that helped put us in the predicament we're in today? Then we go through uh, the civil rights movement and then how the Black Power Movement comes out of SNCC in 1966 through the Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, okay? We go through and look at this history to better understand what we need to do today. We see how we were under attack back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So people's history and culture teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community, okay? And we go through, look at this history, and we look at this timeline of history, look at cause and effect. We see we've dealt with things like this before. We have to understand how to understand from our history how we dealt with that in the past and how to deal with these problems today. Okay, so visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Once again, this is a 10-week online course. Um, each class we go through and analyze approximately a 10-year period of history, okay? And we do the classes live. All the sessions are recorded. You can go, you can go back and watch them over and over again. All right. Uh, hold on. Why is it? Shoot, let me share it. Yeah, we do the classes live. You can go back and watch them over and over again. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and scroll down the page. You'll see the information from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Click on Register here to take you to the next page, and just click on Enroll. All right. Classes on sale, $80, regularly $130. This bonus content also, you, you will also get the... Uh, the lecture I did June 16th, 2021, you'll get it in digital download format when you register for this class. Uh, deals with the history of Juneteenth. You'll get that lecture also. It's a two and a half hour presentation I did dealing with the history of Juneteenth. Okay. So just click on enroll and we'll see you in class on Saturday. Um, and then the other class that I teach is uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We do, we do that on Sundays. Okay, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. It's the same format of the class as well. We do PowerPoint, book references, articles, video clips, etc. So we just post a link here. You can register for the classes. There's bonus content there you can watch also. All my DVD lectures and uh, digital downloads are on our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, and we have the uh, uh, Michael M. Hotel Black History Month uh, 15 uh, DVD bundle pack also. And then the six uh, D, uh, title bundle pack in DVD and digital download format, Black Migration 16, 19 to 2019. These are just a few of my lectures here. All right. So, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct your own behavior. Uh, it's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And uh, we'll talk to you uh, next time. Let's see, we're, we're off um, Sunday. We'll be, uh, I'm off Sunday and Monday. So, we'll be back live um, with the African History Network show. We'll be back live on Tuesday, okay? Because uh, they're re-airing. The radio station shut down Saturday and Sunday. And uh, I'm not doing the show Monday. 
most of the shows are repeats on Monday also for Labor Day. So I said I'm taking Labor Day off as well. Okay, so we'll see you in class this weekend. Right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV, the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network. Subscribe now. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface Tablet, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that will satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle her hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword. And how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustler Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustler Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new uprise.